Welcome to Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for our February 2020 issue of NCP is Nutrition and Liver Disease. So joining me today is Dr. Robert Rahimi, the corresponding author of the paper, Hepatic Encephalopathy and Nutrition Influences, a Narrative Review, which is published in the February 2020 issue. So Dr. Rahimi is a clinical assistant professor of medicine and a hepatologist in the Division of Hepatology at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Rahimi for several years, and I know that uh, encephalopathy is an area of expertise, and he's very passionate about nutrition as well. So thank you, Dr. Rahimi, for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Hassey. So before we start a discussion, I'd like to ask Dr. Rahimi if he has any disclosures on this topic that he'd like to share with our audience. Uh, yes, actually, because of my interest in hepatic encephalopathy, my disclosures are uh, with the Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals, who provide research support for my hepatic encephalopathy clinical trials, as well as Salix or Valiant who also support me from research, from a research standpoint for my clinical trials. Thanks. So let's just kind of start out by talking about hepatic encephalopathy. So I typically think of that historical categorization of type one to type four hepatic encephalopathy, but Dr. Rahimi, your paper kind of starts with that definition and then talks about categories of encephalopathy based kind of on four specific aspects. So can you briefly explain these aspects for our listeners? Sure. So exactly, Dr. Hassey, as you alluded to, there are four different aspects where we think about hepatic encephalopathy. Um, usually you think about the type, the severity, the timing, and what are the precipitating factors. So to specify the type, there are three different types. There's type A, a for acute liver failure, so someone can come in with acute liver failure and they have hepatic encephalopathy, they have no underlying liver disease. Then there's type B, B is in boy, for bypass, patients that have either portosystemic bypass that is naturally created by the liver, it causes shunting, or when a hepatologist decides that a patient needs a portosystemic bypass like a TIPS, which is a transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt used for treatment for either um, esophageal varices bleed or ascites, uh, and our interventional radiology colleagues place these tips in, and that's creating an artificial bypass to prevent those other symptoms. Then there's the more common one that we all think about is uh, type C for cirrhosis. So most of the article and most of the discussion will be around this type C. Now, so that's one main aspect. Now, if you think about the second aspect, you think about severity. So there's two separate types of severity. There's the covert hepatic encephalopathy or overt hepatic encephalopathy. Covert hepatic encephalopathy is CHE. And that specifically is not obvious. When you see patients, you can't tell. When you see them in clinic, they could be a little foggy. They have some brain fog. However, if you do psychometric testing, the abnormalities will be found on these tests. Now, usually covert hepatic encephalopathy, um, within that, usually there's different stages. There's stage zero and one. That has also been thought about for minimal hepatic encephalopathy. So that's the overall 
umbrella term covert hepatic encephalopathy, which includes grade zero and grade one. Now we shift to overt hepatic encephalopathy, which is OHE. And that specifically are those patients you see hospitalized. So usually grades two through four, four being coma, and grade two, the patients are confused enough that they don't know where they are. They're, um, they don't know what time it is, the time of day. Sometimes they get confused. And so this is now, out of the four aspects, this is the second type that we describe, which is the severity. Now looking at timing. Timing is the third aspect. And that has to do with, is, does it come on often? Is it there um, permanently? And so when you break that down, the subcategories are episodic, which is usually less than one hepatic encephalopathy episodes within the six month. And then recurrent is more than one hepatic encephalopathy episode within six months. And then you have some patients that have persistent HE. And they have a little baseline confusion. They're not, they're usually grade zero or one, but they don't require hospitalization. And then the fourth aspect is specifically precipitants. And these precipitants can be spontaneous, um, either due to, let's say, noncompliance from medications that we can talk about later, or they're precipitated by certain um, aspects like infection or diuretic use. Uh, sometimes patients that have ascites, we give those patients diuretics, and that can lead to electrolyte abnormalities, including elevated kidney function, dehydration, and that could precipitate um, hepatic encephalopathy. So that's the overall four aspects when we think about it, and we can move on unless you have any other questions. Well, I think that's really a good segue into my next question because for years as hepatologists and nutrition specialists, we've been trying to dispel that myth that encephalopathy is caused by protein because we still see patients coming in on low-protein diets, but we know that there's a lot of other risk factors and precipitating factors that cause encephalopathy. So can you go into a little more detail on that? Oh, absolutely. Um, so that's correct. In the past, we thought, and when I was in residency training, uh, the papers that were coming out said, oh, you know, high protein diet, we should not give it because the thought initially at that time was when you have a high protein diet, you have a high protein load. And that protein load, the gut bacteria breaks up that protein and the byproduct is ammonia. And that ammonia then can't be metabolized by the liver. However, you're exactly right there. That has been dispelled. The newer studies say, look, all those older studies are basically incorrect because most of the patients, really close to even 90%, have severe protein malnutrition or at least some protein malnutrition. They don't have to be severe, but cirrhosis is a catabolic state. It's breaking down muscle. So they become frail and sarcopenic. So they're actually lacking muscle. They need muscle. In order to give that to them, they need protein. So um, Dr. Hassi, you're exactly correct. That myth is debunked and we want to give patients more protein, usually 1.2 grams per kilogram per day to 1.5 grams per kilogram per day per ideal body weight. Now, that being said, to answer your question specifically on the main risk factors to precipitate HE, it's, there's multifactorial factors. Uh, probably the most common is not taking the medicines correctly. And one of them we'll talk about is lactulose. That's the standard of care therapy. Um, usually it's in a liquid and it's supposed to allow for two to three bowel movements a day, 
patients don't like it. So sometimes they don't take it. And if they don't take it, then they have this precipitation of hepatic encephalopathy. Now, the other parts, um, these patients are at risk for infection. So infection can always uh, result in hepatic encephalopathy. Uh, whenever a patient comes in with HE, an infection workup absolutely has to be done. That includes you know, chest x-ray, blood cultures, paracentesis if they have ascites, and treating the underlying infection. Now, as we talked about briefly before, diuretics, and that can cause actually uh, elevated kidney function or hyponatremia, low sodium, that can precipitate these patients into hepatic encephalitis. So medic medication categories, diuretics being one of them that the hepatologist usually gives, but there's also other ones. A lot of patients are on opioids and benzodiazepines, um, either for pain or anxiety. That can also trigger or precipitate HE. Um, GI bleed is another one. Um, so patients that come in with any type of GI bleed, that can actually precipitate HE. But these are the most common ones. There are all other minor ones, um, but for this discussion, we don't need to go into that. So when we talk about HE and the pathophysiology, I realize it's fairly complex, but can you kind of briefly give us some of the main theories of what causes the encephalopathy? Uh, yes. So actually, um, it's very interesting because most people focus on um, ammonia. And we know through research that actually we technically don't know what the exact cause of encephalopathy and the pathophysiology. It's actually multifactorial. So overall, even though it's a catabolic state and um, we discuss patients um, need protein, we know that ammonia is an important factor, but also the gut microbiota and aromatic uh, amino acids play an important role. But inflammation is really being the new trend where people are looking at not only inflammation and the gut microbiota, that also plays a huge role, but we're learning more as we continue to do more research. That being said, we also know it's not just the liver. There's also the muscle that's involved and kidney function um, that plays into the role of the pathophysiology. And of course, the brain, when we get the astrocytes that swell, which are the brain cells, usually due to the ammonia, because the ammonia is the toxic breakdown of these proteins that are ingested um, when people eat food. And if you have liver disease, the byproduct is ammonia, and that ammonia uh, within a diseased liver can't be cleared, so it goes into the systemic circulation through the blood-brain barrier and goes to the brain cells, specifically the astrocytes, and causes swelling. That's really a multifactorial cause, and it really has to do with the muscle, kidney, uh, the liver, uh, the gut, the microbiome, and inflammation that plays a role in all of this. So you have mentioned the breakdown of muscle, and I know another area of interest for you is frailty. So what's the connection between frailty and hepatic encephalopathy in these patients? So that has become a new um, interest of mine and part of our group where we're doing a lot of research, specifically our frailty group. Um, they're looking at um, overall when a patient has um, is frail, the cirrhotic. We know that muscle absorbs part of that ammonia. And when we looked at different patients with cirrhosis, we saw that frailty um, not only can be associated with hepatic encephalopathy because the muscle now that the patients are frail, they're more sarcopenic, 
they lack muscle. So part of that extra muscle that is not there, the ammonia can't be absorbed. And so with that, they have an elevated toxic, usually level of ammonia causing hepatic encephalopathy and confusion. And with that, we know that that has been independently associated with higher mortality and weightless mortality for patients actually waiting to be uh, transplanted. It's not fully understood, but we know that protein um, as well as muscle is very important in the overall pathophysiology. We're starting to learn that as we go along, and hence nutrition really becomes important in these severely protein calorie uh, malnutrition patients. I think we've made the point a couple of times how important the protein is, and I think you can give us recommendations earlier on how much protein a patient should have with cirrhosis. But what about other nutrients? Are there other nutrients that we should be thinking of and concerning supplementation of when our patients have cirrhosis and hepatic encephalopathy? Oh, yes, absolutely. So there are other nutrients um, definitely involved. And when we look at the type of patient, like um, the cirrhotic overall, we always know that there is usually portal hypertension in play, which is elevated pressure of the liver causing the confusion, the hepatic encephalopathy. So that being said, we have to take into account like sodium. A lot of these patients um, with their sodium, um, we have to counsel them on having a low sodium diet, usually less than two grams per day or 2000 milligrams a day. The reason that becomes important uh, one of the other precipitating factors that we didn't touch on earlier is if, if you have a low sodium, just like if you and I had a low sodium, we would have confusion. So we don't want the patients to have too low of a sodium. And with that, we have to really counsel them on their sodium intake. Because what happens if they eat too high of a sodium diet, they end up drinking more water. And that causes not only fluid retention, but it can alter their sodium levels. That being said though, um, it's very important that usually these patients still get the proper amount of sodium. You don't want it too low, even though we recommend less than 2000 milligrams for palatability for foods, because everything has salt, as you know, most of the foods. We want their, their sodium content probably closer to 1.4 grams per day, so they are able to eat and enjoy their food. So that's sodium. Now, if you think about zinc and thymine B1, as well as vitamin D, all of these have played um, a central role. Now, most cirrhotics have zinc deficiency, but if you check the blood level, it usually takes a week to come back. And so you won't know if they're zinc deficient. However, if you happen to check these patients and find out they're zinc deficient, you usually say, well, well I'll treat you with zinc. There have been some studies that show it's helpful, but you also treat the underlying hepatic encephalopathy with the standard of care lactulose. So you could consider um, zinc supplementation, like 600 milligrams uh, daily for patients that are uh, zinc deficient. Now, what about thymine, thymine or vitamin B1? Most of this thymine deficiency you see in patients that have alcoholic-related liver disease or alcoholic cirrhosis. They lack thymine, so you can supplement with thymine. And some of the studies also moving away from thymine, looking at vitamin D, a lot of us actually are vitamin D deficient. We don't go out in the sun, but the liver specifically conjugates and actually takes the sunlight and your kidneys and liver work on vitamin D synthesis. Now, these cirrhotics, since they have a damaged liver, they can't really make vitamin D, so they, they are a little vitamin D deficient. So some of the studies have looked at if you do vitamin D supplementation, that can also 
help with hepatic encephalopathy. And other things when you look at HE, um, they talk about uh, not having high manganese type foods because uh, manganese has been shown in some studies to go into the brain and go into the nucleus, um, uh, the basal ganglia. And that is what we sometimes see in like Parkinson's disease. But that is also the center where high manganese on MRI has shown to be associated with uh, hepatic encephalopathy. So you also tell patients to watch out from eating too many high manganese foods. And I think that manganese probably relates a lot more to our patients who might be on nutrition support, specifically TPN. If we have a patient on TPN, we may want to watch those micronutrients as well. Exactly. So I just exactly. want to, yeah, I, I'm going to kind of close up the loop on the treatment of an encephalopathy because we talked a little bit about the lactulose, but if you could mention then the role of rifaximin and then also we know that the gut microbiota is very important in health and disease. And so what are the data with regards to probiotics and, and maybe preventing or treating encephalopathy? Uh, sure. So talking about the gut microbiota, that is currently very exciting research that a lot of centers are doing. We don't know too much about it. We do know that there are certain different types of gut microbiota that are lower in, in cirrhotics and higher in patients that are either taking lactulose, which is really a prebiotic. And uh, prebiotics really promote the growth of the microflora in the gut. And now if you talk about the prebiotic and separate that with probiotics. Um, probiotics overall are like live microorganisms, um, usually found in like yogurt and sauerkraut. Um, but there was a study looking specifically at cirrhotic, specifically uh, VSL3, number three, um, and looked at probiotics. And they did show that overall, it does help patients. It restructures the gut microbiome, and it does prevent or show improvement for hepatic encephalopathy. However, further studies are definitely needed in this space. Now, looking specifically at lactulose, we know that's the standard of care for patients that have had at least one episode of hepatic encephalopathy. But to answer your question about rifaximin, it's a non-absorbable antibiotic. It stays in the gut. And some of the studies have shown that it actually does alter gut microbiome. And that's why it decreases the readmission for hepatic encephalopathy. However, rifaximin is only supposed to be given after you failed the first episode or um, lactulose, you failed lactulose therapy and got readmitted for hepatic encephalopathy, or at least that's the current FDA um, label to say, once you failed lactulose, you need to be put on rifaximin. So it does alter the gut microbiome and that becomes important in, in hepatic encephalopathy overall. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Well, I think this has been very helpful to have all this discussion, but before we close today, Dr. Rahimi, do you have any other comments or information that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Uh, well, I want to thank you, first of all, for having me. Um, but just to summarize, hepatic encephalopathy in general, it is a reversible neurocognitive disorder. But we're learning more as we go along with research. However, it's very important to know the nutritional aspects and the gut microbiome are really starting to take off. Most people would not even think about the nutritional and gut microbiome um, regarding hepatic encephalopathy. But nutrition is very important. 
patients in general should uh, consume the proper amount of protein, actually. It's very hard to get to that level. However, um, usually 30 to 35 kilocalories per kilogram per day with at least a gram of vegetable protein per kilogram per day is important. It's shown to improve hepatic encephalopathy. Um, that being said, it's also very important to have multiple meals for these patients because it's a catabolic state. So we recommend breakfast and four to six small meals throughout the day with nighttime snacks of complex carbohydrates. So patients can actually keep their gluconeogenesis and limit their protein breakdown. And, you know, vegetable protein and dairy proteins are important. The main issue with that is the tolerability and palatability. Sometimes patients like more of the meat protein, but that's something that um, we recommend definitely protein intake. And the future of research probably is going to be the microbiome. And there is some small studies that are looking at uh, FECO microbiome transplant or FMT. They're looking at safety, but that needs to still um, be looked at from a multi-center study. However, it has shown benefit. So fecal microbiota transplant has shown improvement for hepatic encephalopathy, but more studies are needed to come to a conclusion. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Rahimi, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. And I want to invite all of our readers to find out more about nutrition and liver disease and the February 2020 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. So thank you. Thank you very much.